Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. In prayer, then we are instantly forgiven, cleansed of all of our sins, restored to fellowship, and the ongoing spiritual life, growth-producing ministry of God the Holy Spirit uh, resumes. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, as we come together today at the end of a, of a long day, a busy day, a day where we face challenges, a day where we face various tests, a day where we've also witnessed your blessing, we're glad that we get to focus on the eternal truths of your word. We pray that as we study these things tonight that we may gain a greater understanding of this important doctrine and that it may help us to not only answer questions that we may have in our own souls but also to equip us that we may be able to answer questions of those to whom we witness, to whom we minister in terms of sharing the word and encouraging them with the truth of God's word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are looking at Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Hebrews 7.25 is a key verse in understanding the doctrine known as eternal security. What's interesting is that over the last several weeks, a couple of months, I've gotten a number of different questions, requests, comments for clarification from people who are out there really on the front lines of applying the word in terms of their ambassador ministry for the Lord Jesus Christ. Things like this, where you really get into the nuts and bolts of some of these doctrines, really won't mean a whole lot to you if you're sitting alone in your little house and you never interact with unbelievers or with people who are not uh, on the same uh, sheet of music with you, so to speak, in terms of an understanding of doctrine. If you're out there talking to people about the Bible, what you believe, and why you believe it, then they're going to be asking these questions. If you're in situations, I pointed out last time from uh, one of the um, families that has uh, been listening to some of the uh, <coughs> streaming video, but they live out on the West Coast in an area where they're are not too many good churches, and they've been trying to find just a, an acceptable church in their area. And so the uh, husband, the father, has been uh, going to the pastors and asking questions to find out what these churches believe. What do they actually believe? And he finds that he, he doesn't always get a straight answer. And, and uh, he gets... Oh, acceptable answers, but then he has to learn the right question to ask to really expose what people believe. And uh, interaction with him uh, was one of the reasons that I thought this was important to go into some of the aspects of this because, you know, he was struggling because he'd get these different answers and he sort of smelled a rat, but he wasn't sure what the terminology is. You have to sort of understand that there's jargon here, just like in any any area of thought, any area of study, whether you're whatever, whether you're in business or whether you're 
in uh, academics or whether you're in literature or writing, whatever it is, there's always jargon related to whatever the arena of thought is. And you have to figure out that they, that the certain, certain words and certain phrases, uh, really come loaded with a whole lot of baggage. And you have to learn to spot these things. And if you're, if all you do is come to Bible class and take notes and go home and you never talk to anybody about what you're learning in Bible class, you're never trying to witness to anybody to help them understand the truth, then studies like this are going to fall flat and go, well, that's kind of interesting, but I just never see anybody who believes these strange things. And that's because you're not out there getting your fingers dirty, as it were, in the real marketplace interacting with people. But you get somebody who's following the example of of the apostles and the challenge to uh, communicate the gospel to the lost, then you're going to be hit with so many questions you won't know what to do, and you'll be in Bible class and listening to to lessons every time you get a chance just to figure out what the answers are. Because there's nothing, I think, that's more um, embarrassing, I think, than to sit in a conversation with two or three people, and they think, well, the Bible says this and the Bible says that, and you go, I know it doesn't, but I can't answer. And I ought to be able to say something. And so you feel rather helpless. And the purpose for the church, according to Ephesians 4, is not to come together and share. It's not to come together and encourage. It's not to come together and praise God or feel good. It's to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. And that comes through the teaching ministry of gifted leaders that God gives the church, specifically pastor, teacher, and evangelist, Ephesians 4, 11, and 12. So we're looking at Hebrews 7:25, and this verse says, let me back it up here. Therefore, he is able, he is also able, that is Christ in his, in his high priestly ministry, specifically beginning at the cross and then ongoing after the ascension. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. The basis for salvation is what Christ did on the cross. But that ongoing security that secures the eternal salvation that you and I have that can't ever be lost is based on his eternality. And as we've gone through this study in Hebrews 7, talking about the uniqueness of Christ's high priestly ministry and that that it is uh, following the order of Melchizedek, what makes his high priestly ministry significant and greater than any human high priestly ministry is because he is eternal. He's the eternal second person of the Trinity. Now, I pointed out last time that the key phrases here are this phrase, to the uttermost. He's able to save, not partially, but to the uttermost, completely. He brings it to its full end. He saves to the uttermost those who come to God. And the phrase, save to the uttermost, is a compound word from the Greek word pos, meaning all, and the root word telos, meaning to its proper end. So it comes to mean to save completely, totally, to bring it to its full completion. Those who come to God, and this is the same root word, erkamai, but it's used as, it's pros there in uh, Hebrews 7, 
but it reminds me of Matthew 11:28. Come to me, Jesus said, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Coming to God is comparable to trusting Christ as your Savior. That's how we come to God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Same word. No one can come to the Father except through him. And the only way to come to the Father is by faith alone in Christ alone. And we trust in his completed work on the cross. So this brings in brings together two key ideas, two key doctrines. One is eternal security, and the other is the intercessory ministry of Jesus Christ in terms of his ongoing high priestly ministry at the right hand of the Father. And they intersect in terms of the securing forever of our salvation. So we started last time with the doctrine of eternal security. I've taught this before back in the salvation series several years ago. I reviewed parts of it in Revelation, and I've gone back and added some verses and talked about some new aspects and and, uh, tweaked it a little more in the last uh, couple of weeks. So I've added some from where we started just by way of introduction last week. So we looked at our definition. Point number one is a definition that this is the work of God toward the believer. And what I'm emphasizing here is when we talk about eternal security, the issue is, does God secure our salvation or is it dependent on us? And the problem that we get into is people somehow think that that, that basically they have a very small view of what happens at salvation. They have a, a truncated view of the problem of sin. They have usually have a pretty diluted view of sin and the sin problem. And so they have a rather diluted view of what salvation is. And so for them, it's rather easy to think that somebody gets saved and then they, then they lose it. Like they're just given eternal life like it's something assigned to them and then it's taken away. And they don't come to grips with everything the Bible says about about their salvation or what God does for them in salvation. Furthermore, they don't understand all the promises that we have in the Bible related to each member of the Trinity. So it's the work of God. So as we go through these points, it always focuses on what God is doing, the essence of God and the, and the roles of each member of the Trinity in securing our salvation. So it's the work of God toward the believer at the instant of faith alone in Christ alone, which guarantees that God's free gift of salvation is eternal and cannot be lost, terminated, abrogated, nullified, or reversed by any thought, act, or change of belief in the person saved. Now, every element of that is important because somebody comes along and makes some issue out of some aspect of that, And the last phrase is you can't think anything, you can't think of any sin, you can't perform any act, you can't suddenly wake up a week from now and say, oh, you know, Christianity is just full of contradictions, they're just a bunch of hypocrites everywhere I go, they call themselves Christians, and I don't believe Christ and I'm going to deny him now. Because there are many Christians who say, if you ever deny Christ, that's it, you've lost your salvation. So you can't change anything because your salvation wasn't based on who you are or what you did, and so it's 
preservation is not based on who you are or what you've done. And if you think you can do something to lose it, somewhere in your thinking, buried deep maybe, or maybe it's just that you don't realize it, is an idea that there's something you, you do to get it. And, and I really do believe that, that even though it may not be overt, people may not understand it, that, that if they don't understand eternal security or don't think you can be eternally secure, they usually have some element where they think you do something to get salvation. And then I broke it down this way, uh, related to understanding what happens at salvation, that when a person trusts in Christ, that means to believe, to accept him as their Savior, to rely exclusively upon him. And I say that that really gets at the whole Roman Catholic construct of salvation. It's Christ alone. It's not Christ plus the Mass. It's not Christ plus uh, the various sacraments. It's not Christ plus good works or doing good, involvement in the church. It's Christ alone. That if you don't do anything else other than trust in Christ alone, not Christ in the church, Christ in Mary, uh, Christ in the saints, it's Christ alone and it's faith alone. What else you do has nothing to do with it. It's just pure and simple. That's why you have to have alone modifying both faith and Christ. Because if it's faith alone in Christ, that opens the door to something else. If it's faith in Christ alone, that faith can come with some baggage. So faith alone in Christ alone makes it very clear. And it's for salvation. There is an understanding that Christ died for your sins. There's a sad thing that's been going on the last Actually, it's been going on longer than four or five years. It's only been on my radar for about a year and a half, two years maybe. And that is, and it's splitting the Grace Evangelical Society. For those of you who aren't familiar with that, when uh, Prof. Hodges, Zane Hodges, who is a Greek prophet at Dallas Seminary, started uh, writing some books clarifying the issues between a pure free grace salvation and uh, lordship salvation and what was coming out of the reform camp, and if you don't know what that means, we'll get into it again in just a minute, that uh, when, as those things became clear, there were a number of people who really began to understand the nature of grace, that grace means it's free, no strings attached, it's not you're saved, it's free as long as you do something later on, it's free as long as you're grateful, it's free as long as you have works consistent with your faith, it's free, it's a gift. As he made that clear, there were many, many pastors and theologians who organized themselves together in what became known as the Grace Evangelical Society. They produced a quarterly or, or biannual journal, I guess, annual meetings, things of this nature. But in the last few years, there have been some theological issues that have slowly reared their ugly head. Some of us became acquainted with that here at the Chafer Pastors Conference in March of 06, a year and a half ago, when uh, John Niemela presented a paper related to understanding the gift or accepting the gift of eternal life which uh, God had offered. And uh, <clears throat> the, the illustration they keep coming up with that you hear a lot is if you're stranded on a desert island and you pick up a piece of paper 
and it just has one little section of a couple of verses in it out of John 5. I'm going to turn there so I can articulate this correctly. You just have a couple of verses there from John chapter 5, verses... Um, well, now here I start talking about it and get ad, ad hoc here, and I can't find the exact exact verse... It's like for verse 24, Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life. No, it's not 27. Anyway, the idea is that that this one verse, uh, is they just pick up a couple of statements in there. They believe in the Son, accept the gift of eternal life, and they'll believe. And it doesn't mention the cross. It's just mentioning this principle that Jesus came, offered eternal life, and if you accept me, you have eternal life. But there's no mention of the substitutionary atonement of Christ, no mention that Christ died for your sins, no understanding of any of, the, any of these aspects. It's just accepting the gift of, of, of life from Jesus. And they go to a number of passages in John to, to support this. The problem is that John, John chapter 5 occurs before the cross. And so... Jesus hadn't gone to the cross yet. So there's no mention of the cross, and there's no mention of his substitutionary atonement. And there's some other issues with that, but what they've done is they've basically said you can become saved, and you don't have to believe in the cross. You don't have to even know about the cross. In fact, you don't even have to believe that Jesus is God. And they play around with the meaning of uh, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Well, that just means something else. It's a messianic term. It doesn't mean he's full deity. You don't have to believe the Messiah is full deity in order to get saved. So there's this is really tearing the Grace Evangelical Society apart. That's why you have a new organization that started called Free Grace Alliance. It's had some impact on Schaefer Seminary and some other things. So this is why I am... Uh, I emphasize this, when a person trusts in Christ for salvation, what does that mean? That he died on the cross for your sins. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I delivered, 3 and 4, I delivered to you what was of first importance, that Jesus Christ died according to the Scripture and was buried and rose again the third day according to the Scripture. That was the priority. And so this is very important to understand the content of the gospel. And when you trust in that gospel, then God permanently justifies. He imputes righteousness, justifies, regenerates, gives eternal life. And this cannot be lost no matter what that person does or does not do from that instant on until the day he dies. That's our definition. Now, another aspect of this is just talking about terminology. There are other terms that are used in this, and I was asked some questions about this last week, so I added this uh, statement in here. Other terms that are used for this are once saved, always saved, assurance of salvation, and, of course, a term we've already used, eternal security. And some people think that assurance of salvation and eternal security are synonymous terms and that all three of these are basically saying the same thing, and they're not. They each say something a little differently. Um, Eternal security is a term that refers to the objective work of the triune God. We'll see that the Father, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, each is involved in securing our salvation and keeping it secure. 
Eternal security refers to the objective work of the triune God in keeping us saved. This is often called the objective aspect of the doctrine. In other words, God is keeping you secure whether you understand it, believe it, or have confidence in it or not. And no matter what is going on, God is the one who holds you in his hand. That's the objective side. That's what eternal security is. Assurance of salvation is the subjective side. That's my understanding of what Christ has done for me and my confidence and assurance that I cannot lose my salvation. Now, there are many people who don't believe in eternal security, but they're still eternally secure. There are many people who do not have an assurance of their salvation. They're so afraid because they haven't been taught anything that if they commit some sin that they can lose their salvation. So they don't have much of an assurance of salvation. There are others who are taught that the only way you can know if you have real, genuine, saving faith is if you if you have certain works that are consistent with uh, with genuine faith. And they don't feel like they have those works, so they doubt their salvation. So assurance of salvation is the subjective side. People can believe in eternal security and not have an assurance of salvation. That's true of many high Calvinists. That is true of people in lordship salvation. They just can't have an assurance of their salvation, but they believe in eternal security. Don't confuse the two. On the other hand, if you're, if you're an Arminian, you may believe that you have an assurance of salvation, but you don't believe in eternal security. So they're, they're not the same thing, and there's different groups that have different views. The, thir- the other phrase I mentioned was once saved, always saved. And you, a lot of high Calvinists will say they believe that once saved, always saved, and I don't know if I'm, if I'm really saved. And you can't really be sure you're fully saved because you may have a false faith in Christ. I went over that and their views on that last time. The third point, we covered this a little bit last time, the historic positions, first of all, high Calvinism, and that really is the best way to refer to a strong Calvinism is high Calvinism. The difference between high Calvinism and hyper-Calvinism is hyper-Calvinists do not believe you should ever witness to anybody because God, if God wants them saved, he'll save them without any help from you or me. And that's a direct quote from a Baptist minister in the late 1700s in England who when William Carey, who's considered the father of modern missions, came back from India and was giving a report to the Baptist denomination about all the souls that were being uh, won to Christ in India, this old hyper-Calvinist Baptist got up and said, Son, you know, if God wants them to be saved, then he'll do it without any help from you or me. And that was his point, was we don't need to raise money and send out missionaries. When God wants them saved, he'll save them. So that's hyper-Calvinism. High-Calvinism is a, typically a five-point superlapsarian or uh, infralapsarian type of Calvinism. And I'm, uh, if you don't know what that means, I'm not going to get distracted now. Like the old problem of t- trying to understand the infralapsarians, the sublapsarians, the hyperlaps, the uh, uh, superlapsarians, and Labrador retrievers. Just it's a whole different thing. High Calvinism represents the five points of Calvinism indicated by the acronym TULIP. Total, T stands for total depravity or total inability. 
that man is so enchained, bound, his will is so bound that he cannot do anything to uh, please God. And that's true. We would say that. But they would say that he can't even express non-meritorious volition. Can't do anything. Can't, can't even uh, say, God, I want to know more about you, uh, because for them that would have merit. And he can't do anything meritorious, so uh, they're, they're totally depraved. And uh, Martin Luther held that view. He wrote a book on it called The Bondage of the Will. And speaking of Martin Luther, how many people know what yesterday was? Oh, so good. Yesterday was the 390th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Reformation Day. Okay, the U, unconditional election. That means God doesn't have any conditions on his choice. He's just going to uh, arbitrarily choose. That's where I have a problem with it, because I don't think God arbitrarily chooses who will be saved and who won't. He just hasn't told us what the conditions are, but he has conditions. And I think the condition is that he knows who would believe under certain circumstances and who never, who won't, who will have positive volition and who will not. The L stands for limited atonement. Jesus died only for those that were elect. The I is irresistible grace. The Holy Spirit will irresistibly make the gospel clear to someone so that when they see the light, they will uh, respond and trust uh, in, in Christ. And the Holy Spirit only performs that act of irresistible grace on the elect. P stands for perseverance of the saints. Those who are truly elect upon whom the Holy Spirit has irresistibly moved, will necessarily persevere in good works and never turn totally from Christ, never reject or renounce Christ, and they will ultimately be saved. It is not equivalent to eternal security, although for many people they have made it such. For Lewis Perry Chafer, they were virtually synonymous. He did not hold to a, um, a high Calvinist view of the perseverance of the saints. On the other end of the spectrum, there's Jacob Arminius, Arminius, who died in 1609, but his followers were uh, challenged and brought to a church trial at the Synod of Dort in 1618-1619. And they believed that a saved person, in classic Arminianism, a saved person can lose salvation only by a complete denial of Christ. It's not by sin. There's only one way you can lose your salvation, and that is to turn your back on Jesus and to completely renounce him. And once this occurs, according to their view, you can never again be saved. Now, that's not the only form of Arminianism that is out there. There is also Wesleyan Arminianism, named for John Wesley, the founder, actually not the founder, but uh, one of the founders of Methodism. It actually started with an evangelist by the name of Charles, uh, George Whitfield. George Whitfield was a high Calvinist and an evangelist. And uh, <clears throat> when he came to America to preach revivals, uh, while he was gone, the Wesley brothers made an issue, though they had promised not to while he was gone. They made an issue out of Calvinistic doctrine. And so when George came back to England, he found that the movement was split. And rather than make an issue, he decided to be a gentleman and he just walked away, and the Wesleys hijacked Methodism and uh, made it Arminian. And there, the Wesleyan view is that salvation can be lost through any serious intentional sin. But 
you can be resaved if you'll repent. So this is referred to, we have tulip theology with Calvinism, and this is daisy theology. He, he loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. Okay, Wesley stated this this way. He said, I cannot believe that there is a state attainable in this life from which a man cannot finally fall. In other words, you can't be permanently, totally con- confident of your salvation and eternally secure. He also said, I find no general promise in Holy Writ that, quote, none who once believes shall finally fall. And then third quote, he says, on this authority, based on, he's commenting on Ezekiel 18.24, he said, I believe a saint may fall away, that no one, that one who is holy or righteous in the judgment of God himself may nevertheless so fall from God as to perish everlastingly. So that just gives you a little bit of the, of the historical issue. Now, the problem that has erupted is this, this conflict between uh, eternal security and uh, perseverance of the saints. And this is how Calvinists will define it. I went over some of these last week, so I'm going to go through them pretty quickly. Westminster Confession of Faith, They whom God hath accepted in his beloved, go down to the end, uh, they shall certainly persevere. It puts the emphasis on the they. This is a tough passage. Because some people think, oh, this is just eternal security. But the last phrase picks up the subject from the first of the paragraph. They shall persevere. It's the person that perseveres, not God or Christ who perseveres in keeping you. Uh, there are those who have a balanced view. Louis Burkhoff's a high Calvinist, but he says, look, we have to be careful not to put the burden of perseverance on the individual on the continuous activity of man, but on God. Charles Hodge said this uh, related to the Apostle Paul in, first, in his comments on 1 Corinthians 9.27, this devoted apostle considered himself as engaged in a life struggle of his salvation. Paul wasn't relaxed in his say. When we get there, just think of all the verses I'm going to go to from Paul that he knew whom he believed and was confident that he was able to keep his salvation against that day, 1 Timothy 1.12. So the idea of, of uh, perseverance in Calvinism is there must be perseverance in holiness, therefore in opposition to all weakness and temptations. It's the only sure evidence of the genuineness of past experience. How do you know you're saved? By persevering. They bring works in the back door. So ironically, it's not much different than the Armenian, Armenian opposite. Um, you have lordship salvation. On the one hand, no assurance, assurance based on, on works following faith. And the Armenian position, no eternal security salvation. And actually, it's more like this. They're just... Slightly different. You, neither one can have any genuine assurance or eternal security. So let's get into the doctrine itself. What I want to do is begin with general arguments from the character of God. 
and then we will look at specific arguments on the basis of each member of the Trinity. So this will probably take two or three weeks. We'll start with the general general arguments from the character of God himself, and so we'll start with our uh, essence box. God is sovereign, he's righteous, he's just, he's love, he's eternal life, he's omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, veracity, and immutability. God is all of these things simultaneously. Each of these modifies all of the others. So his love is righteous and just and eternal. It's also immutable and true. His his truth is based on righteousness and justice. So all of these intersect and interconnect. But let's just think about a few of these. For example, God is omniscient. That means that God knows all the knowable. God is eternal. That means that God has eternally known all the knowable. Well, if God knows everything there is to know, all the actual as well as all the hypothetical, then God knows every single sin you do commit and every single sin you might commit. God's not surprised. Billions and billions of years ago in eternity past, when there was no time, there were no angels, there was only the triune God, God in his omniscience knew every single sin you were going to commit. And he knew every single sin that you might commit. He knew all of the uh, realities and all of the possibilities. Now, in his omniscience, that means that when God decided on a plan of salvation, he was going to construct a plan. I'm speaking somewhat anthropopathically. He decided he was going to construct a plan that would be so uh, complex and so comprehensive that every one of those sins that he knew every human being would commit would be paid for by Christ on the cross. In his omniscience, he didn't overlook one. He didn't, he didn't miss one. He didn't wake up one day and go, oops, I forgot to, to take care of this sin. He knew every single sin the, the big sins, the little sins, the sins that you don't want to admit are sins, every single sin, every word, every thought, he, he was aware of. And he uh, put every one of those sins on Jesus Christ. He imputed every one of those sins to Jesus Christ. Because God is also omnipotent, he had the ability to fulfill his plan, and he had the ability to do that. Because he is just, he could judge all of those sins on the cross and design a salvation that would fully and completely satisfy his justice in relationship to all of those sins. So to say or think that you can say or do something today that wasn't paid for on the cross that would cause you to lose your salvation is really blasphemy. What you're really saying is, God forgot about this sin, or I can sin a sin that's too great for the justice of God, too great for the grace of God, too great for the love of God, and was unknown by the omniscience of God. And see, what that reveals is that you have a very small God. You don't have a biblical view of God or his attributes. Another aspect of this kind of thinking is, that in the character of God, he is righteous and he is immutable. That means that he, when he makes a promise, he's going to keep the promise. 
He is going to be true to his word. He is going to be faithful to his promise. And he is never going to change once he has said that he will do something. A verse that focuses on this aspect is in 2 Timothy 2, 11-13. Faithful is the word. The, the faithfulness of God's promise, the word there is not a title for Christ. It is a, an emphasis on the promise of the Scripture. That's where we know we have assurance. That's one thing that's missed in all these debates is how do you know you're saved? Because God said so. God said, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you will be saved. He is true to his word. So faithful is the word, Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.11. If we died with him, first class condition, and we did... We shall, if we died with him, we shall, I left the word out, we shall live with him. If we endure, that is, in suffering for blessing, if we endure through the trials and tribulations and testing of life, we shall rule with him, that is, as mature believers. If we deny him, he will deny us. Now, does that mean that he'll deny us salvation or that he'll deny us rewards? Those are your two options. But in light of the last phrase of this verse, which says if we're unfaithful, that is, if we quit believing in him, he remains faithful. So you can't take the denial that that he will deny us as losing salvation without violating the meaning of the last phrase. We do know that at the judgment seat of Christ, Jesus Christ will deny us rewards and he will deny us blessings. If we are unfaithful, That means if we are disbelieving, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So all of this relates to the argument from the character of God, who he is, and what he has done. Okay, do we have time? Yes, we do. I want to get into the first part, which flows from the Security from God the Father. The believer is secured by the purpose, the power, the provision, and the love of God the Father. We've seen that from the character of God, there is a security of our salvation. Now we're going to look at some specific verses related to how God the Father secures our salvation. First of all, and then we'll probably just get to the first aspect tonight, that is the purpose of God. God has a purpose in salvation, and that purpose cannot be overridden. The purpose is to save those who believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior. And we see this laid out in a series of verbs in Romans 8, 29, and 30. And each of these describe the same group. That's what's so important to focus on here. When you look at, just look at, at, um, let me read the verse and then we'll go to the end. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. So what we have is a final group of people that gets glorified. They end up in heaven. Now, is that the same group of people that were justified? Yeah, 
He doesn't say, doesn't say most of those he justified, he glorified. It says these he justified, those he glorified. So everybody who gets justified gets glorified. A justified are those he called. Now, he calls through the preaching of the proclamation of the gospel. It is through the hearing of God's word that people respond uh, to his uh, calling. So he is going to call them. These he called, those whom he called, these he also justified. Those he predestined. Predestined are those who have a predetermined destiny. That's what predestined means. It doesn't mean fatalism. The word has that concept of determining a destiny ahead of time. And the point in these two verses is that God, those who are justified are those who are glorified. He doesn't drop any. Nobody falls out by the wayside. Those who are, who are justified are glorified. Now, part of the problem that people have when they look at this whole issue of eternal security is they think they can do something that that can violate the purpose of God. And God's purpose in saving us was to bring us to glorification. And he secures, he planned a salvation to secure salvation through justification and regeneration that was not reversible. And the, one of the big problems that, that you have if you think you can lose your salvation is you have to explain how your sins get un, how your righteousness gets unimputed and how God is going to now declare you unjust and how you go through this process of going from being spiritually alive and that whole transformation that occurs at regeneration to becoming spiritually dead again and losing your human spirit and everything everything related to it. It, it, it. Salvation is an extremely complex thing, and so once it happens, then God's plan is going to be brought to completion. Well, that looks at just the first aspect, which is the, the uh, purpose of God. I still want to look at the power of God, the provision of God, and the promise of God. Father, thank you for this time that we could study these important doctrines in Scripture to understand that, that there is a security and a stability that goes far beyond the events of history, a security and a stability that provides us with an eternal salvation that no matter what we do, where we fall, where we fail, that our, our relationship with you is not dependent upon who we are, what we do, but on who Jesus Christ is and what he did on the cross and on your immutable character. Now, Father, we pray that you would comfort us, encourage us, strengthen us with what we study tonight. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.